Well, good morning, LCM. Today's date is January 14th, 2024. And I'm still getting used to saying that. The title of today's message is Hammer and Anvil Tactics. This past Sunday, in an incredible message called El Shaddai, preached by Elder Eric Stevens, Gabriel Stevens, and Luke Ledesma, we learn from the lives of the patriarchs about the God who is enough, especially when we know that we are not enough. So I want to throw up a slide that you should remember. This was the summary of the questions that they posed before us. The first question, it was derived from Genesis 17 in the life of Abraham as El Shaddai appeared to him in the wake of his failure with Hagar and the impossibility of producing the promised son. Together, somebody say together. Together, together we have found that El Shaddai is enough to work through the impossibility of our situations and the effect of spiritual barrenness. The second question was derived from Genesis 28, as Isaac blessed his son Jacob. And then Jacob had to journey into the unknown while knowing that his track record was far from flawless. Look from this. We found that El Shaddai is enough to work through our own flawed track record, especially as we journey into the unknown. The third question was derived from Genesis 35 at a midpoint in the life of Jacob, as trouble sought to consume Jacob's very identity and his faith in the future. From this, we found that El Shaddai is enough to sustain you and to define who you are while you're experiencing death and difficulty that seeks to rob you of your divine identity. This fourth question, it came from Genesis 43, in the latter years of Jacob's life, as he had to risk experiencing loss all over again. Did anybody wrestle with that question? What we have found together is that El Shaddai is enough to sustain you, even as you risk losing it all again and again. This fifth question came from Genesis 48 at Jacob's final acts or to call El Shaddai to mind as he blesses those who will carry on the promise of God in his absence. Together we found that El Shaddai is enough for your generations that will carry on after you were gone. Anybody remember our sixth and final question? Came from Exodus 6, as Moses was reminded of the God who was enough for the patriarchs and would also be enough for him and Israel in that situation. You see, Moses, he had just promised deliverance for Israel, and he had spoken to them about entering into a new land that they would possess. But up to that point, the net result of all of his efforts was that Pharaoh just made the lives of the Israelites harder, and he oppressed them more severely and tried to wrench all hope from their souls. So this morning, we're going to pick back up in Exodus 5 to get started in our message. We're going to go into Exodus 5, verse 22. Somebody say there when you're there. Then Moses 
turned to the Lord and said, Oh Lord, why have you done evil to this people? Why did you ever send me? Look, this morning we're going to wrestle with the text a little bit. And I promise you, just like Moses, we're going to come out on top as we wrestle with it. But we can't read over verse 22 and just skip to the promise part. What condition is Moses in? I mean, the great man of faith. Have you considered the audacity? I mean, and I don't mean it in holy audacity. I mean the general term, audacity. To be speaking to God himself. And he says, why have you done evil to this people? Saints, while this is grossly inappropriate, it's also a representation of the wrestling that goes on in all of our hearts and minds in the same situation. The only difference between us and Moses is that Moses has the pleasure of his successes and failures being published for the whole world to learn from. But it's in this kind of condition that we pick up with Moses. This is not his best moment. This is not the most supernatural, faith-filled moment he's ever been in. This is a moment as he summoned his faith to lead the people of Israel into new lands. And this is what is going on. Let's get verse 23. For since I came to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has done evil to this people. And you have not delivered your people at all. Moses' basic complaint is that the task of bringing Israel into new lands has not seemed very productive thus far in his eyes. He feels in this moment as if he has labored in vain. And all of his efforts have only made things worse. It seems as if it would have been better had he not tried at all. Can you feel that with me for a moment? Saints, this, somebody say this. This is when Adonai chooses to appear to him. And when he appears to him, he doesn't speak just one thing. He gives him one and a second name. Let's read the coming verses. But the Lord said to Moses, 6-1, Now you shall see what I will do to Pharaoh. For with a strong hand, he will send them out. And with a strong hand, he will drive them out of his land. Remember, Moses just accused God of having done nothing but evil to Israel. And God spoke to Moses. He spoke to him and said, I am the Lord. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty. But by my name, the Lord, I did not make myself known to them. I also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, the land in which they lived as sojourners. Moreover, I have heard the groaning of the people of Israel, whom the Egyptians hold as slaves, and I have remembered my covenant. Saints, it's in the midst of Moses' breakdown when he's accusing God and wondering whether or not he should be doing this thing at all. Maybe he should just go back to the desert. That is when the God of Israel speaks to him 
two things. I am the Lord. Or I am YHWH. I am the God who always keeps and remembers his covenantal promises. In a sense, he's saying to Moses, I have not forgotten. Somebody say, he is the covenant-keeping God. But that's not all that the Lord speaks. The second thing that he says is, I am the El Shaddai. I am the almighty God. I am the God of the patriarchs. I am the God who is enough even when you are not. I did it in the lives of your ancestors, and I will do it again. Somebody say, he is the God who is enough for me. So you begin to think about these two names, the combination of Adonai's choice to draw these two names to mind. It communicates that God is the faithful covenant-keeping God. And, somebody say and. And, as demonstrated in the lives of the patriarchs, he is the God who is enough for you, especially in your inability. When everything that you've touched seems to have only made it worse. Another way to say that is, the Lord is speaking to him, I am faithful to what I said I would do, and I am the God who's able to cause you to be faithful despite your inability. Saints, there's a wonderful combination in this that we're going to explore as we continue. But it'd be one thing if he said to him, I'm faithful. Well, Moses is still left wrestling with, but I'm not. It'd be one thing if he said to him, I'm a God who's enough for you, but you don't know that he's faithful to his promises. He declares, I am the faithful covenant-keeping God. What I said would happen will come to pass. And I am the God who's able to make you succeed in reaching that promise. So let's do this again. Let's say he is the covenant-keeping God. And he is the God who is enough for me. The Lord then goes on to give Moses seven I will statements regarding what will happen to Israel. And it is where we draw the four cups of Passover from. So I have a slide for you. Seven I will statements in the four cups. Remember, this is on the eve of Moses' breakdown moment. We're a few verses and a few seconds from him accusing God of doing nothing but evil. But he's just had a revelation of a twofold promise from God. I'm the covenant-keeping God, and I'm the God who is enough for you. And he says, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. Well, what was he just wrestling with? The burdens have only gotten worse since I've been here. But the Lord says, I will bring them out from under it, and I will deliver you from slavery to them. In other words, I'm not going to just make your burden lighter I'm not going to make the work easier. I'm going to take you out from slavery altogether. And I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. In other words, this is God speaking to Moses saying, hold on, buddy. I've got some miraculous power on display. But you need to learn to grab hold of the fact that I'm a covenant-keeping God and I'm enough for you in the interim. I will take you to be my people. And I will be your God, and you shall know that I am the Lord your God who has brought you out from under the burden of the Egyptians. I will bring you into the land 
that I swore to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. I will give it to you for a possession. I am the Lord. Saints, the major import of this is it's reaffirming through the character of God that he will cause each of these things to come to pass. And the major issue at hand that has put Moses in a bind is that he knows Israel must enter into new lands. But he has not seen the fruit of it in this moment. All of this that Adonai is communicating, well, it is in a sense saying that he is faithful to keep his covenant and all of its facets. And he is enough to cause them to see the fulfillment of these promises. No matter how in unable Moses or Israel seem to be. Somebody say that's beautiful. I mean, that's as reassuring and comforting as you could possibly imagine. It is God himself manifesting his name in two different ways and then giving seven statements about how he will cause it to come to pass. The God that we serve and the God of Israel is a beautiful covenant-keeping God who is enough for us. So let's say this one more time. Say he's a faithful covenant-keeping God. He's a faithful covenant-keeping God. Who is also, who is also enough, for me enough for me in my inability. In my inability. Anybody in the room feel encouraged as you begin to think about that? I do. I do too. I think at this point in the sermon now that we're 13 minutes in, it's best that I explain to you the title and help you clinch with the actual problem that Israel had and the problem that you have. Let's take our next slide. Hammer and anvil tactics. So we just read from Exodus 5, 22, all the way down to Exodus 6, 8. Moses spoke thus to the people of Israel, but they did not listen to Moses because of their broken spirit and harsh slavery. The text itself begins to interpret after all of these amazing promises. I am El Shaddai. I am YHWH. I am the God who is faithful and a covenant-keeping God. I am the God who is enough for you. And then seven I will statements that declare you're going to enter the land. You will be free, man. You will possess it. I will do it. They don't listen to his words. They don't listen to anything that was said. They don't listen because of a broken spirit in her slavery. What is below is an excerpt from a military journal. The hammer and anvil is a military tactic involving the use of two primary forces, one to pin down an enemy and the other to smash or defeat the opponent with an encirclement maneuver. It may involve a frontal assault by one part of the force playing a slower moving or more static role. Second phase involves a more mobile force that maneuvers around the enemy and attacks from behind or the flank to deliver a decisive blow. The anvil echelon here is not a mere diversionary gambit, but a substantial body that hits the enemy hard to pin him down and grind away his strength. The hammer, or the maneuver element, succeeds because the anvil force materially or substantially weakened the enemy, preventing him from adjusting 
or moving to the threat in his flank or rear. Look, I know for a few in the room, that makes perfect sense. For others who don't have a military background or don't appreciate studying those kind of things, what is on that slide means very little to you. So we're going to explain it. The basics of this ancient satanic attack are to utilize two different types of forces. Somebody say two types. The first force, his job is to paralyze and immobilize the enemy. Get him tied up. Get him fighting something substantial, something difficult, like slavery. Then the second is to hammer the target from another direction that does not leave him the ability to breathe or move. In ancient warfare, this was done using stationary infantry that would lock up or slow down the opposing troops and cavalry that would swoop around to hammer the enemy from another side. In modern warfare, this is usually done with a wall of tanks and infantry that immobilize the enemy in combat. Then, aircraft hammer the enemy from above as they're paralyzed in the fight with the infantry and tanks. This methodology of warfare is credited all the way back to at least Alexander, and it is the basis for the United States policy of maintaining air superiority. The hammer and anvil tactic is why our military operates like it does, which is all well and good unless you are in the hammer and anvil. In truth, this battle strategy goes back much further than the Greeks, and it's been utilized by a sinister schemer for a millennia of human history now. Just like Israel today, there's never just a one-front fight. You're dealing with Gaza that is in your borders, but you have the constant threat of what the northern border may do while you're locked up and immobilized in a fight. In our context of Exodus 6, Israel has just heard the news that they will be delivered and that they will be entering into new lands. What is facing them and robbing them of their trust in the covenant-keeping God who is enough for them? Well, it's not just the slavery. It's that they are trapped in a hammer and anvil tactic of the enemy. The anvil is the ongoing slavery that seems to be immovable in their lives and has caused them to believe that nothing will ever change. The hammer is that their spirits have been broken. So every supernatural testimony from Moses is being hammered out of them by doubt. They're still oppressed by Egypt and they've allowed their spirits to be broken so they would not listen to Moses. Saints, you need to grasp this for a moment. Slavery alone could not hold them back. What could hold them back and cause them to not hear Moses speaking was a two-prong attack. Slavery and a spirit that was broken. Christian, there is a principle at work in the life of every believer, one that has been put on display by the custodians of the word Israel for a millennia now as they continued to march on in obedience. Every time you receive a greater understanding of who God is and his desire for you to stretch out into new lands and new lands of responsibility, well, the enemy retaliates in advance of your progress. It's anticipatory. He knows that you're about to stretch out. He knows that something may happen. Most often, these attacks, well, they're not a one-front fight. Again, like a northern border that is looming while you're dealing with a more median conflict. 
You have a conflict going on that is from within and from without that seeks to destroy the seeds of faith within you before you've had a chance to produce fruit in it. We love theological teachings, and I enjoy sermon series that we've spent the last month in, teaching you how to understand the plan of God towards the end of the age. Today you will learn something, but my chief aim is to teach you to learn to win. My, ch my chief aim is to ensure that you do reach the new lands that God has destined you for. And that you're not bound up between an anvil and a hammer. That a two-pronged attack doesn't rob from you that which God has destined you for. So to that end, we're going to take an overview of how Moses, Joshua, Ezra, Peter, Elijah, and Daniel defeated the hammer and anvil tactics of the enemy. And each of these men, the situations that we'll be examining are as they stretched out into new lands and new lands of responsibility. In the coming weeks, you will hear more about each of these subjects and the lives of each of these men from specific pairings of men from this body as we step into new lands all in one accord. This message is an overview that is designed to equip you for the coming fight and let you know where we are going in the coming weeks as a body. So we're going to pick up with Moses. We're going to pick up with Moses as he is stretching out to lead the people into new lands. Remember, he's already been through his five and six moments, but the people were still not listening to him. We're going to roll forward to Exodus 14 as they're now following him, but he's having to lead them through the same trials he himself went through. 1411. They said to Moses, it is because there are no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness. What have you done to us in bringing us out of Egypt? Is it not this what we said to you in Egypt? Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians. For it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. Saints, where have you heard that before? This is the people of Israel speaking nearly the same thing to Moses that Moses said to God. It's a two-pronged attack that is going on and is trying to rob them of their faith and rob them of their ability to enter new lands. In our context here, they know that Pharaoh's chariots are coming. Like there's a very real, a substantial force, an army that they can see that is a problem. But those chariots and horsemen are not really an, an issue, and you know that. They're only an issue in a two-pronged attack. The secondary element that is hammering them in this moment is that they're now immobilized by fear. They're literally standing around, unable to move, unable to make a decision, struggling to follow Moses and do anything but sit because they're being hammered from within. We can debate what the anvil and the hammer is in various situations, but the net effect of this scheme is to paralyze and then pound them into oblivion right at the moment that they are starting their journey to a new land and they're stretching out. Adonai through Moses is going to give the people the solution to the anvil and hammer. And it comes in verse 13. Moses said to the people, fear not, stand firm and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. 
the Lord will fight for you, and you only need to be silent. Saints, I don't want to review sermons that we've taught on, but you can go listen to a message called The Devil in the Deep Blue Sea. The text here says you have only to be silent. This is not speaking about silencing your mouth. This is speaking about silencing the inner man. This is speaking about silencing and creating a quietness of soul. This is speaking about getting rid of the second prong of the attack, the paralyzing fear. Verse 15 says, The Lord said to Moses, Why do you cry out to me? Tell the people of Israel to go forward. Lift up your staff and stretch out your hand over the sea and divide it, that the people of Israel may go through the sea on dry ground. Saints, there are two principles that we're going to pick up today. Somebody say, still yourself. When you're in the anvil and hammer, when you are experiencing a two-pronged attack that always accompanies the desire to stretch out into new lands, you get to first start by stilling yourself. You get to first start by quieting the inner man. And you do this and trust in El Shaddai. The way that you quiet yourself is by reminding yourself that I serve the God who is enough for me. Another way to say that is you quiet the inner man by reminding yourself of the God who is enough and you say to yourself, enough of those thoughts. And then you got to get up. You have to get up and move forward in obedience to the God who always keeps his covenant and his promises. God lays out a pattern and he sets a foundation in Moses for all of the word and for all of those who would come after him. That when Pharaoh is bearing down on you, that when your own thoughts are betraying you and you're getting hammered into a small spot on the floor, the way that you get out of it is by trusting El Shaddai and saying enough to those thoughts. Get up and move in faith in the promises. What happens here? The results of this are that the very sea split and Pharaoh's army was drowned. The people received the written word of God, the first codified text, the first time a Bible could be held in your hands. And they progressed in their journey to settle in new lands. There was a two-pronged attack. Pharaoh wasn't a problem in and of itself. But Pharaoh and that paralyzing fear, well, that was a real problem. So God gave a two-pronged solution. We've looked at the life of Moses, and we're going to look at Joshua. We're going to look at Ezra. We're going to look at Peter, Elijah, and Daniel. We need to know that Moses did not do anything wrong for this attack to come. We're about to look at the life of Joshua. Joshua did not do anything wrong. But someone else did do something wrong. We're going to engage in Joshua 7. And it is right on the heels of the battle with Ai and the defeat of Israel. Joshua 7, 6. Joshua tore his clothes and fell to the earth on his face before the ark of the Lord until evening. He and the elders of Israel, and they put dust on their heads. Do you notice how the Lord addressed Moses earlier? Why are you crying out to me? It goes on and it says, And Joshua said, Alas, O Lord, why have you brought this people over the Jordan at all? It wasn't worth trying. It wasn't worth stretching into a new area. To give us into the hands of the Amorites to destroy us? 
Look, this is not how we usually like to think about Joshua. He's an extraordinary example in the word, but once again, like his disciple, he's accusing God of wrong. But again, their thoughts are just published for the world to learn from. What would have been, we would have been content to dwell beyond the Jordan. Oh Lord, what can I say when Israel has turned their backs before their enemies? For the Canaanites and all the inhabitants of the land will hear of it and will surround us and cut off our name from the earth. And what will you do for your great name? Saints, there's a two-pronged attack going on here. The men of I are a substantial force. They're a physical adversary that is a problem. Of course, Joshua and Israel have been destroying a lot of physical obstacles up to this point. When the men of Ai were combined with the sin of Achan, and a satanic scheme was sprung on Israel, when the devil was able to create a two-pronged attack, well, thousands perished, and Israel lost the war. Let's think about the life of Joshua in this moment. We just engaged with what happened to the actual men fighting, but Joshua wasn't on the battlefield. Joshua has the defeat of I. I mean, a giant failure. He's a leader. He's lost a battle, and he has lost the lives of Israelites he cannot get back. If he changes his ways, if he conquers it later, it doesn't mean those men live again who died in the battle. This is like an anvil. It's an immovable object that he's, he's up against now. It's telling him, you can't fix this anymore. You might make it better later, but you already failed, and that failure remains. That in and of itself, he might be able to move through. But the thing is, it was, it was a two-pronged attack. The fear and questions that ensued inside of Joshua were then hammering his own spirit as he's trying to figure out what to do. you got to imagine the thoughts that came to him. I mean, look, if you were in his position, if I was, we lost... I'm about to find out there's sin in the camp I wasn't aware of. That would be the first question you asked. Why didn't I inquire of God? Why didn't I know? Why didn't I hear from him? I am responsible for this family of Israel. And I just took a suggestion and let him go fight. See, Joshua has to move knowing that men are dead, that he has had a failure, and he's being hammered by the thoughts of what he could have done differently to fix this situation. Adonai is going to give Joshua and the people the solution to the anvil and hammer that is crushing them into the very earth. Verse 10. And the Lord said to Joshua, get up! Why have you fallen on your face? You might be starting to get the impression that God does not appreciate it when we whine and cry in prayer and accuse him of having poor character. You're starting to find a pattern here that each time there is a hammer and anvil situation and Israel is lost, men are suffering. He says, get up. Get up. And then further instructions will come. The Lord said to Joshua, get up. Why have you fallen on your face? Israel has sinned. They have transgressed my covenant that I commanded them. They have taken some of the devoted things. They have stolen and lied and put them among their own belongings. Therefore, the people of Israel cannot stand before their enemies. They turn their backs before their enemies because they have become devoted for destruction. I will be with you no more unless you destroy the devoted things from among you. And again, verse 13, get up. If God has to tell you something twice, do you think that he means it? 
He says, get up. But he doesn't just get up and stand around. He says, get up, consecrate the people and say, consecrate yourselves for tomorrow. For thus says the Lord God of Israel, there are devoted things in your midst, O Israel. You cannot stand before your enemies until you take away the devoted things from among you. Saints, there's a pattern here that Joshua demonstrates very well. You can go read in your own time the rest of the chapter. But you need to understand our response. The way that Joshua, the great warrior, the man of God, got out of a situation where he's crushed and can't see the world or God rightly. He has to start by stilling his inner man. By quieting himself. He has to stop crying out foolishness before God and calling it prayer. He has to trust in El Shaddai, the God who is enough for him, and say to his inner thoughts, that's enough, I know, El Shaddai. And then he has to physically get up. He has to do something. He has to move forward and go consecrate the people in obedience to what God has said. Because God said they would enter the new land, and he always keeps his promises. Look, in Joshua's life, this does result in Israel settling in new land. He saw Adonai's good promises come to pass and says that he has seen all of them and God being faithful in every bit of it. And in this, the entire nation got to receive their inheritance. So you should remember that Moses didn't do anything wrong for an attack to come. You have to simply work to stretch into new lands and obey God. And I can guarantee you, attacks will come. In Joshua's life, he didn't do anything wrong. But someone else in his care did something wrong. But in both cases, they had the same solution. To still yourself. To quiet that inner man. And trust in El Shaddai, the God who is enough. And then they had to get up and move forward in obedience to the God who always keeps his covenant. Next, we're going to go to Ezra. Peter, Elijah, and Daniel. But here in Ezra, before we turn to the passage, I want to remind you of the context. Ezra is post-Babylonian captivity. That means that they've already been driven out of the land. That means that the men in Ezra's day, many of which were born in captivity and had never seen the land that God called them to. So turn in your Bibles to Ezra 9, and we're going to pick up in verse 1. It says, after these things have been done, the officials approached me and said, the people of Israel and the priests and the Levites have not separated themselves from the peoples of the lands with their abominations. From the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Jebusites, the Ammonites, the Moabites, the Egyptians, and the Amorites. For they have taken some of their daughters to be wives for them and for their sons, so that the holy race has mixed itself with the peoples of the lands. And in this faithlessness, the hand of the officials and chief men has been foremost. As soon as I heard this, I tore my garment and my cloak and pulled hair from my head and beard and sat appalled. Then all who trembled at the word of the God of Israel because of the faithfulness of the returned ex- faithlessness of the returned exiles gathered around me while I sat appalled until the evening sacrifice. And at the evening sacrifice, I rose from my fasting with my garment and my torn cloak and fell upon my knees and spread out my hands to the Lord, my God, saying, oh, my God, I am ashamed. I am ashamed and blush 
to lift my face to you. My God, for our iniquities have risen higher than our heads, and our guilt has mounted up to the heavens. Saints, we're going to engage with this two-pronged attack, and we're also going to see how Ezra moves on from this point victoriously. But you need to engage with what's happening. See, people have not separated themselves and are engaging in the same sinful practices as the people of the land, meaning that they're freely living alongside people who are pagans that they should not be living alongside, and they're imitating their practices. They've allowed associations and friendships with the world to begin to corrupt them, which is bad, but could be overcome. The two-pronged attack of the enemy is that the people and the leaders went a step further and had marriages that produced offspring. You see, you can have judgment in the land and a remnant remains that will be faithful. But if you have all of the people of the land intermarrying and creating something that is no longer the people of God, it is cutting off your hope for the future. The enemy's two-pronged attack was to get men of God to have worldly associations. But the second part of that that was hammering them into oblivion was that he was corrupting their offspring so that it would never have a hope of getting any better. Adonai is going to give Ezra and the people the solution to the anvil and hammer that is threatening to cause them to lose the land again that they just so recently came back to. We're going to go to Ezra 10, verse 2. And Shechaniah, the son of Jehiel, the son of Elam, addressed Ezra. We have broken faith with our God and have married foreign women. You see the two-pronged attack? From the peoples of the land. But even now there is hope for Israel in spite of this. Therefore, let us make a covenant with our God to put away all these wives and their children according to the counsel of my Lord and of those who tremble at the commandment of our God. And let it be done according to the law. Arise, for it is your task. Saints, there's something that we've got to learn in this body. Every man of God has a responsibility to arise to the task that you have. You must first arise. And then the verse says, and we are with you. And we are with you. Be strong and do it. Then Ezra arose and made the leading priest in Levites and all Israel take an oath that they would do as had said. So they took the oath. Guys, you should be catching at this point in the pattern and you should be catching in your own life that the beginning to fixing the situation, the beginning of getting out of the anvil and hammer situation, well, it starts by stilling yourself in your inner man. Nothing ever changes by crying out and lying on the ground and in a sense pretending to pray while you complain. The first thing that has to happen is you have to go back to how God revealed himself to the patriarchs and say, El Shaddai is enough for me. I say enough to these thoughts. And then you have to arise. You have to get up. You have to move forward in obedience to God and always remember that he is faithful to bring about that which he has promised. The results in the life of Ezra is that he saved the nation from destruction that had so recently been regathered. And he saw them remain in the land that Adonai brought them back to so that there was a Jerusalem for Jesus to walk into. 
Ezra wrote books of the Bible. Ezra established adherence to the word that continues to preserve the people of God to this very day. And it is a part of the reason that you can still identify who Israel is. Because they've clung to the word after the standards Ezra set. So I want you to think through this again. Did Moses do anything for there to be a fight? Moses didn't sin, but the enemy knew he was moving into new lands. Joshua was moving into new lands and the enemy was trying to make him suffer for it. But did Joshua sin? Someone in his household did, those that he was responsible for. In Ezra's case, Ezra did not do a single thing wrong for the enemy to be looking to kill him. But everyone around him did do something wrong, from the least to the greatest. He is surrounded by men who have been compromised by these decisions. But in each of these situations, you have the same solution. Ezra had to steal himself in El Shaddai, the God who is enough for him. He had to get up. He had to begin to move forward despite the fact everyone around him was compromised. But as he began to obey, God purified the people through Ezra's willingness to cling to this. We're going to take a look at Peter. Then we'll move on to Elijah and Daniel. For Peter, we're going to pick up in John 18. And you need to know that Peter's on the edge of new lands of responsibility and the greatest trials of his life up to that point. It'd be John 18, verse 25. Now Simon Peter was standing and warming himself. So they said to him, you also are not one of his disciples, are you? He denied it and said, I am not. One of the servants of the high priest, a relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off, asked, did I not see you in the garden with him? Peter again denied it, and at once a rooster crowed. So guys, you know the story. He denies Jesus three times. He cut an ear off, which is, it's all good. Jesus healed that one. I want you to imagine that you're Peter, because you are. And this is what is going to be facing you. Peter's working to stretch out in new lands, which always means that you're going to fail often in the effort. You don't get to rise to new levels of responsibility without failing in the endeavor as you're learning. We're talking about a two-pronged attack or something that is like a weighty, immovable anvil. Can you imagine for Peter, say if he did have hope that he could still move on from here. The fact that he denied Jesus three times and it's written in the word forever can't be taken back. It's one of those failures that he now has to live with and be able to move on from. But he can't take back the fact that he had denied the one that he loved the most, not once, not twice, but three times. He's got to live with that being a part of his track record now. We need to engage with the other side of the two-pronged attack that is what actually makes the failure dangerous. Now he thinks that his Lord is dead. He's done. They killed him. And that he can do nothing better with his life than go back to fishing. 
This is the man who received the revelation of Messiah. And that revelation embodied in Peter would build the church of God. But a two-pronged attack has wreaked havoc in his life. He knows that he denied him. He now believes that he's dead and he's good for nothing other than fishing when he's actually called to be an apostle. It's hitting him like a hammer in the head every day that he wakes up after denying Jesus. Can you imagine? He's waking up in the morning and the very first thought that comes over him and the rest of his day is entirely viewed by, what do I do now? I denied him and he's gone. It would have been better not to try. Let me go back to fishing. Let me go back to Egypt. Let me go back to what I was doing before. Pounding the identity of God out of him. Saints, if you engage with that a little bit, it's not just Peter. We're going to come to a place in the message where we relate some of these things to our own lives. But like Moses, you don't have to do something wrong to be attacked as you're stretching into new lands. On the other end of the spectrum, you very well may do something wrong in the effort to stretch out into new lands. But the mistake itself is not the biggest issue. The first prong of the attack is not the problem. It's when you're experiencing a two-pronged attack that is hammering you every day after you made the mistake, trying to drive out of you the courage God has given you. Adonai is going to give Peter and generations of men after him the solution to the anvil and hammer that seeks to destroy your faith in the very call of God that he gave you. We're going to pick up in John 21, verse 7. The disciple whom Jesus loved therefore said to Peter, It is the Lord. It is the Lord. When Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment, for he was stripped for work, and he threw himself into the sea. The other disciples came in the boat, dragging the net full of fish, for they were not far from the land, but about a hundred yards off. Look at your thinking about this. Peter's in a situation where he's hunched down in a boat. He's fishing and dragging nets. He's hiding in the place that Jesus found him because he has begun to believe that he's good for nothing other than where Jesus found him. Look, I don't know where Jesus found you. I know where he found me, but it wasn't a place that I ever want to go back to. Yet despite that fact, as grown men, as Christians... You have an abysmal failure and you allow yourself to get into that two-pronged attack that is hammering you after the fact. And it slowly makes you think that you were good for nothing other than where Jesus found you and you might as well go back. This is the place that Peter is in. And it is in that place that the character of God appears to him who is El Shaddai, the God who is enough. Both Jesus and Peter begin to say, still yourself, quiet your inner man, enough. With those thoughts, I'm alive and what I purposed you for is still real. Then the very first thing. Somebody say the first thing. Peter doesn't stay in the boat. He doesn't lay at the altar a little longer. He doesn't pray a little more that is really just complaining. He gets up out of the boat and he begins to move forward in obedience to the God who always keeps his covenant. And he promised to Peter that he would be an apostle who built the church. There are men in this room that are settling into new lands of responsibility in your households, in your workplaces, in ministry, 
And I promise you're going to have these Peter moments. You must learn to recognize the two-pronged attack. You must learn to greet the two-pronged attack with the tools that God gave you, starting with Moses. For Peter, this resulted in settling in the new land of responsibility Adonai had ordained for him, and the church of God was not overcome by the gates of hell. For Peter, this resulted in a life that mirrored Elijah and miraculous testimony, resurrections, a shadow healing people, a life that set a standard for the rest of the generations to come. And in the end, he did see the gospel expand all over the earth. Moses didn't do anything wrong for an attack to come, and you don't have to either. Joshua didn't do anything wrong, but someone else in his household did. Ezra didn't do anything wrong, but everyone around him did. Peter, Peter did do something really wrong. In fact, Peter had no one else around him to blame. It was him and him alone who denied Jesus. And yet the same solution was there for him. I would call your names, but I don't want to draw attention to the attack of the enemy. I'd rather just speak about what God will do in you, and it's not over. Steal yourself. Steal yourself and else you die. The God who is enough for you and say enough to those thoughts. I'm moving beyond it. I'm going to get up. I'm going to go on. I'm going to move forward because I serve a God who's faithful to do what he said he would do. And my inability, well, it has not corrupted his ability to do it. Elijah and Daniel, where we're going next. We're going to go to 1 Kings 19 together in a common passage and engage in it in a new way. So I guess I should remind you, or if you're new here, tell you that this is on the heels of Elijah's great stand of faith. I mean, he's got 450 prophets of Baal, 400 prophets of Asherah, all around him, all by himself, and a contest by fire, and he prevails. This is right on the heels of Elijah having shut up the heavens, and there being no rain for seven years at God's word through Elijah. And then the rain came again, and the land of Israel was watered. What we're picking up in 1 Kings 19 is just before Elijah's actual finest moments, where he raises up disciples, where he sets kings into motion who will do things after he's gone, where new lands will be entered. But we're neither in the victory of the past nor the victory of the future. We're right in the middle of the two-pronged attack that is 1 Kings 19. Verse 1. Ahab told Jezebel, which means unhusbanded, by the way. Ahab told the woman he had not pastored because he was incapable of it. That Elijah, all that Elijah had done, and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. Then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah saying, So may the gods do to me, and more also, if I do not make your life as the life of one of them by this time tomorrow. Then he was afraid. Elijah. And he arose and ran for his life and came to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah, and left his servant there. But he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under a broom tree. And he asked that he might die, saying, It is enough now, O Lord. Take away my life, for I am no better than my father's. And he lay down and slept under a broom tree. So Jezebel. The unhusbanded woman is seeking to kill him. Somebody say prong number one. Prong number 
Prong number two is the fact that he is afraid. Engage with this for a minute. The guy who calls down fire from heaven at will. The guy who says it will not rain and it does not rain. The guy who asks for rain and it does rain is afraid. If it just saw 850 pagan prophets put to death in a great contest of faith, why would one unpastored woman get under Elijah's skin? It's because the enemy had been working to place a seed of fear inside of his heart. And the two-pronged attack has him fleeing and has him on his face. Jezebel would have no power over him if it were not for the satanic scheme that has caused something to hammer him on the inside that is a fear that it's all been for naught. Adonai is going to give Elijah and many who would come after him the solution to the anvil and hammer that is threatening to crush him just before his finest hours when he will raise up his successors. We're going to keep going. And behold, an angel touched him and said, Arise and eat. Guys, I want every one of you to spend time on your knees praying. I want you to cry out before the living God all day and all night. Getting on your face and praying when you should be acting is never something God approves of. Arise and eat. Get off your face. Get out of your complaining prayer. And he looked and behold, there was at his head a cake on hot stones and a jar of water. And he ate and drank and lay down. Then the angel of the Lord came again a second time and touched him and said, Arise and eat. You remember with Joshua, how the Lord told him to get up twice? Here with Elijah we are again. He's telling him, get up, get up. Saints, that should give you an idea of how committed God is to helping you get out of this satanic scheme and stand up on top of it. If you can learn to quiet your own mouth, to quiet the inner man that is constantly trying to drown out the words of God, he'll speak to you as many times as it takes to help you get up and begin to obey and move forward. We must learn to grip in these days because we will need it. I'm going to throw that to you, figure out how to get it to stop. We must learn to trust in El Shaddai and be able to say enough to the inner thoughts. The biggest struggle of faithful men and women in this room is that you're constantly afraid that you will mess up. It's that you have an inner dialogue running all of the time that is not heaven's dialogue. If you can learn to say enough to that because you trust the God who is enough, he will help you get up. He will help you move forward. And as you begin to obey him, you will see the covenant-keeping God's character put on display. For Elijah, this resulted in seeing a change of leadership over foreign kingdoms. It resulted in raising up a warrior king in Israel who would do more damage than Elijah could in a single encounter. It resulted in raising up a successor who was twice as miraculous as he was. So in reviewing the life of Moses, he didn't do anything wrong to be in this fight, but he needed the same solution. Joshua didn't do anything wrong, but somebody who he was responsible for did, but he needed the same solution. Ezra, he did nothing wrong, but everyone around him, he is surrounded by idolatry. And yet, the same solution. Peter, which is the one I and you should identify with the most, he did do something wrong. Let's be honest, we all... Kind of relish the Moses moments. Like, I haven't done anything wrong, man. The enemy's just coming against me. 
Yeah, no, you, you did do something wrong. That doesn't change the fact that Adonai has destined you to reach new lands. Elijah has done everything that God has asked him to do. But the problem is his own emotions have gone astray and are running him into the ground. Since those times when you stretch out to do what is right, and even if you didn't sin in the process in it, but it didn't look as effective as you thought, it didn't feel as rewarding to do what was right. Because giving your life as an offering is supposed to feel rewarding all of the time. And his own emotions after the fact are tearing him apart. But he comes to the same solution and Elijah learns to shut up and trust the God who is enough and say enough to his own thoughts and his own complaining prayer so that he can get up and move forward in obedience. I'm going to take the life of Daniel. And as we do, I want you to know that Daniel is an accomplished man of God in the place in the book we're picking up. He's been through the interpretation of Nebuchadnezzar's dream during his reign. He's had many supernatural events and insights into the heavens. He's not a new kid on the block, so to speak. He's a seasoned man of God. He's now in the reign of Nebuchadnezzar's son, Belshazzar. This is Daniel 8, verse 23 through 27. And at the latter end of their kingdom, when the transgressors have reached their limit, a king of bold face, one who understands riddles, shall arise. His power shall be great, but not by his own power. And he shall cause fearful destruction and shall succeed in what he does and destroy mighty men and the people who are the saints. By his cunning, he shall make deceit prosper under his hand. And his own mind he shall become great. Without warning he shall destroy many. And he shall even rise up against the prince of princes. And he shall be broken, but not by human hand. The vision of the evenings and the mornings that has been told is true. But seal up the vision for it refers to many days from now. And I, Daniel, was overcome and lay sick for some days. Where is Daniel currently? Babylon. The first prong of attack in Daniel's life is that he's still currently in captivity and he has personally seen the devastation brought about by Babylon. He's still not free of the last beastly Gentile empire that crushed his people, that ripped open pregnant bellies, that dashed infants on the walls, that decapitated the young and the old and spread their bodies on the ground like flies. And he has not experienced deliverance from that yet and is still living in Babylon. The second prong of the enemy's attack is that he now knows about the evil that is still yet to come from another beastly Gentile power. Saints, it's entirely possible for you to have a God-ordained insight. Like you are going to be a pastor. You are going to be an elder. You are going to do this in another land. And you hear about the wonderful things God is giving you insight about. 
but the enemy uses that to cause you to feel sick. You begin to turn inside of your stomach, not knowing all that it will require of you and all the opposition that will result from it. The satanic twister of scripture is actually able to take the good things that God is doing for you in this next season and make it a fearful tool to beat you over the head with. However, Adam and I gave Daniel the solution. It says, then I rose. Then I rose and went about the king's business. Saints, you got to steal yourself. You have to learn to be able to say, El Shaddai is enough for me. Enough with those thoughts. Quiet the inner man. He who has promised is faithful. Get up. Move forward in obedience to what he has promised. If he said that he will bring you to this place in ministry, that he will give you children, that he will develop your household as he said, he is faithful to bring it to completion. Still yourself. Get up and move forward in obedience to God. The results for Daniel were some of the greatest insights into the very end of the age. The results for Daniel were a life that was a testimony not in one world empire, but in two world empires. Moses didn't do anything wrong to be in this battle, and you don't have to do anything wrong either. In fact, you'll be in this battle no matter what. Joshua didn't do anything wrong, but he had members that he was responsible for who did sin. Ezra was surrounded by men who were doing wrong on every single side. Peter had nobody else to blame but him for his own decisions. Elijah had done everything God asked him to do, but now... His own emotions were running away as he second-guessed doing what was right. Daniel has done nothing wrong whatsoever. He's just under the weight of understanding Adonai's will and what the beastly Gentile empires will do to his people that are a part of Adonai's plan. But each of these men had the same solution, and you have the same solution. Steal yourself in El Shaddai. Learn to trust the God who is enough for you and say enough to those thoughts. Get up. Arise, move forward in obedience to the God who always keeps his promises to you. The enemy will always preemptively launch a two-pronged assault against you. When he knows that you're about to settle in new lands and new lands of responsibility. If he simply provides an adversary that's not enough, he must have a two-pronged assault, an adversary, and something that is hammering you in the midst of it. These attackers are never a one-front fight. And you may, f- you may fail in the process. And that feels like an immovable anvil in your life. Something you can't take back. Something you can't get rid of. But hear me, it's the second part of the scenario that is really dangerous. It's the hammer that is trying to finish you off through thoughts of regret. Fear pounding away at your confidence. The idea that maybe this new land isn't for me and it would be better just to have stayed where I was and not try to stretch into new areas of life. Saints, do forks make people fat? No. People make people fat. We're in Texas. Do guns kill people? No. No, people who pull triggers do. Do cars wreck themselves, young men? No. I want to tell you that the hammer and anvil tactic is just an effective tool in and of itself. And it is not evil It is a scheme that works whether it is used for good or evil. It basically requires that you're able to immobilize the enemy and then punish him 
over a prolonged period of time, wearing away his strength. In fact, our God also uses a hammer and anvil, and he's given us one. We're going to go back to Exodus 6 on the slide. But the Lord said to Moses, now you shall see what I will do to Pharaoh, for with a strong hand he will send them out, and with a strong hand he will drive them out of his land. So how is this going to be accomplished? Because the actual adversary is the one who ends up getting crushed here. God spoke to Moses and said to him, I am the Lord, Yahweh, appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty, El Shaddai. But by my name, the Lord, I did not make myself known to them. The hammer and anvil that is the character of God, every adversary that they were facing, every internal thought they were facing, was what ended up being crushed in the end. We're in an hour and four minutes, but I don't think I'm done stirring you towards the future. I want to see faith. I want to see an eagerness arise in you. You are people who have done everything we have ever asked of you and have laid down your lives. But these are days where we need to cultivate an eagerness to expand in you where you're looking to be up to bat. You're desiring to step forward. You're not worried about failing. You're desirous of the chance to try. Because you know the God who is enough for you even if you fail and that his promises don't change when you fail. I know what it is personally to have not done something wrong, but I'm surrounded by a two-pronged attack that feels terrible and be able to get up and get out of it. But it comes from quieting your emotions. It comes from beginning to move in the right direction. I know exactly what it's like to be the one who did sin. It wasn't even a failure. It was, it was sin. And have to say enough to those thoughts. Stand up on your feet, man of God. Begin to move. Stop thinking about this. Go up higher. I don't have words to express what it is like to have been beaten into a greasy little spot many times. But have him revive you. To have him breathe on you again. Because he doesn't revive you back to what you were. He revives you into something greater than you were before you were broken. He turns you into a little bit more like him every repetition, every time that you do it. Since you're going to have to be in the anvil and hammer again and again, but you also will learn to turn the anvil and hammer on the adversary by clinging to the word of God, by learning to still yourself, stand up and move forward. And when you do, Pharaoh dies. Those lying thoughts that said you're worthless now, you screwed up and you won't be an apostle, those die. Those things that wage war against you actually get put to death and become testimonies around your neck. Turn to Psalm 107. We're going to go to verse 23. This is something that has helped inspire and set the tone for this ministry for a long time. But it's a little bit like an old treasure that was in the bottom of the storeroom and you forgot about it. And it will help set the tone for you as to how you are to approach these coming months and years of your life. Some went down to the sea in ships, doing business on the great waters. They saw the deeds of the Lord, his wondrous works in the deep. Yeah, come on. Saints, I just want to tell you right now that if you want to see the wondrous works of Adonai, 
If you want to see the miraculous power of God, if you want to see his wonders in your own character, it's always done in the deep. You're not, you will rise to become everything God has called you to be. But you're going to do it by getting off the banks. Stop playing it safe. Start venturing out into deep acts of faith for God stretching forward. And you will sink in the water. But he will pull you back up into the boat again. And you won't be the same man as you were before. Something is forged into the man by walking out onto the water. By going into the deep. Be, failing and not drowning. You're not the same man you were when you stayed in the boat. For he commanded and raised the stormy wind, which lifted up the waves of the sea. They mounted up to heaven. They went down to the depths. Their courage melted away and their evil plight. They reeled and staggered like drunken men and were at their wits end. They went out into the deep to see the wonders of God. They refused to stay on the bank. But obeying God and stretching forth left them at their wits end. Guys, you don't get to stay secure. You don't get to look polished and perfect. You don't get to hide the fact that you might have failure and see the wonders of God. It's only through exposing the areas that you're flawed and being willing to step out of your shell that you can see the wonders of God. Then, somebody say then. They cried to the Lord in their trouble. And he delivered them from their distress. He made the storm be still. Saints, I don't suspect you won't be on a boat anytime soon. Nor is this psalm really teaching us that we need to go out into the Atlantic to see the wonders of God. For you to see the wonders of God and all of the new lands and territory has for you, you're going to have to learn to stretch out you're going to have to learn to willing to be exposed. And when you do, he's going to bring you to your wit's end. A part of you will die, but you won't really die because he'll pull you back up out of the water. And he'll say to the storms in your life, be still. You'll learn to say with him, be still. I know the God who is enough. And then from there, you'll be able to get up and obey him and produce a joyous fruit. He made the storm be still. And the waves of the sea were hushed. Then they were glad that the waters were quiet. And he brought them to their desired haven. Meaning they reached the destination point that they were aiming at the whole time. The new lands that God has destined for you. Let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love. For his wondrous works to the children of man. Let them extol him, the congregation of the people. And praise him, the assembly of the elders. Since you don't get a psalm like that, or hardly any psalm for that matter, without being in the perilous situation, without being willing to expose yourself by stretching out. And the reason that you love the psalms is because they express someone else's wrestling with his anvil and hammer, and they found out God was enough for them, and God was faithful to his promises, and you're benefited by seeing them do that wrestling. You know what is even better than reading a psalm about someone else's wrestling? you learning to do this again and again. Not once in your life when you were born again and moved here. Not every five years when you were asked to do something difficult. But on a weekly and daily basis. Refusing to let life be as normal. Almighty God, what new land have you called me to stretch into today? 
Whether I fail, whether I'm good at it or not, whether I'm being attacked for it makes no difference. I know you're enough and you're a faithful keeping God. So I want to ask you a few questions. Not really questions, suggestions for you to engage with it. When you've stepped out in faith and in, it seems to have only made things worse, what am I talking about? You started engaging in the marriage counseling teaching. You picked up tools from it that you have let lie dormant for a while and you're getting more serious about the flow of shalom. Hear me. And it only seems to have made things worse. This is when you have to t be able to trust God and say to yourself, enough, still the inner man. I know the work product that this will produce because he who promised is faithful. You're implementing the parenting teaching. It seems to be causing trouble. Let's take another one that I know is real in this room. You stepped out in faith to witness at work. And all that seems to have done is inspire more wicked activity. Like now they've made it their mission to be more flagrantly wicked everywhere that you go. And it seems like you speaking about Christ only made things worse. We've got to learn to steal the inner thoughts. We have to learn to trust the God who's enough and get up and go back to work. Because if he called you to do it, he is faithful to bring to completion that which he began in you. As you're settling into new lands... You're going to have moments when you're being attacked by Pharaoh-like forces, and it has nothing to do with you sinning. But you have to learn to stop asking questions as to why I'm being attacked. Was it because I sinned? Was it because I erred? No, it's because you're working to obey the living God, and that always accompanies stretching into new lands. You're going to have moments when you didn't do anything wrong, but a disciple, a son or daughter that you love has royally embarrassed the whole family. You are going to have to learn. Just silence those thoughts. Trust the God who is enough. Quiet your inner man. Get up and continue to obey God. You will be in moments when it seems that everyone around you has sinned. You will be in moments when there's no one else who sinned. It was you and you alone. And despite each of these moments, you will experience the God who is enough to quiet your emotions if you're willing to say to yourself, that's enough. Get up and start moving. Many of you will continue to have greater insight, greater revelation from the Lord about the things that he desires for you to accomplish, and you're going to experience what it looks like to be under the weight of Adonai's revelation. We think about God speaking to you about the future, and when you're sitting in a third-party row in a back seat, you're not driving, the weight is not upon you, you might be shocked to find out that it can be a heavy thing and that that revelation should cause you to wrestle with what is it going to cost me to accomplish that? What sacrifice will be required of me? But that heavy thing was never meant to be something that crushed you. That was meant to be something that cultivated you and caused you to become the man you were always intended to be. That is only done by telling your mind, will, and emotions, that's enough. Quiet, the inner man. He will complete in me that which he said. He is the faithful covenant-keeping God. Saints, in short, whatever it is that causes you to be in turmoil, whether it's a bad report, whether it's difficulty, whether it's having failed when you stretched out, or it's a revelation that God is going to require more and give you more in the future, you must learn to still yourself. Quiet that inner man. Tell him, that's enough. I know the God who is enough. 
get up and then move forward in obedience, trusting him who always keeps his covenant promises. Remember, something must die at an altar. Linton and Rob, thank you for that. That's something you heard this last Sunday that was expounded on this Thursday. So when you hear a message like this, that for some, you're experiencing it right now, and I can see it bringing life into you and you wrestling with it. For many of you, this is theoretical. You're going to be experiencing this in the coming months, and we're equipping you in advance so that you don't lose, so that you win. So what does an altar response look like? Well, the first step is that at an altar, you don't pray complaints, but you instead put to death internal turmoil and trust the God who is enough so that you can hear his call to arise. When you still the internal turmoil, when you quiet the inner man and still those emotions, then you can arise and you must move forward because he is faithful to keep his promises. We're all going to continue to grow, but this is going to be a time frame when you're no longer going to be hiding in a hole. You're no longer going to be losing the, a secondary attack that is hammering you inside of the battle in your own ears. But we're going to do that by learning to quiet those emotions, steal that inner man. And that's what this altar is for. So that you can then arise from it and begin to obey that which God has called you to. It's not the place that we complain. It's not the place that we weep. It's not the place that we lay down and die like so many men in the past. It's the place that you choose to say enough. So stand to your feet with me. Saints, we could not be any more proud of this body. These kind of messages have no value or purpose for people who are not willing to try. They have no value or purpose for people who are not engaged in expansion. But our aim in this message and in the coming series is to equip you to win in the same battles that we have been in. Hear me, especially the ones that we lost for a while. The ones where we didn't say enough to the inner thoughts and it beat us into a pulp for days. And we had to be reminded by a brother, or God had to supernaturally intervene for us to arise, get up, and go back to work. The reason that this ministry exists today was not because it was birthed out of perfection. In fact, it was birthed out of a difficult, horrible situation where most were sinning all the way around. But despite everything that happened in that hammer and anvil situation, a family would not give up said enough to those inner thoughts and arose to do what God had called them to. Then another family, then another family, then another family, and we've risen to the place where we're actually affecting the nations. We're stretching into new lands and we're raising up a host of men in this room and of sons and daughters that are going to be so supernaturally surpassing what we see right now in about 10 to 15 years' time. But the key to being able to see all of that new land that is ahead of us 
is you being able to do this here and now. You being able to speak to yourself, that is enough, and you move on to arise and begin to obey God because all of it hinges on your ability to do that. These disciples that are in the room, they're watching you. These sons and daughters that are in the room, they're watching you. It is no longer acceptable for you to have a failure and then spend days mourning it and scared to move on. It's no longer acceptable for you, the people of God, those he has anointed to minister, to know that somebody should do something and wait for someone else to do it. It's no longer acceptable for us to be in worship and you believe that God's given you something, but you're not willing to try because you messed it up once. We've got to get past those kind of thoughts. And in the name of Jesus, we are. Because this is a time frame when your eagerness to become all God has given you will be matched by his faithfulness to create it in you. The most transformative moments in my life have been when I was beaten. But I learned to say enough to my own thoughts. Enough, 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 enough. And I could begin to hear God speaking arise. It is when you're broken and then rebuilt by God that you actually transform and become something more. You don't get character development without him chipping, clawing, and working through you in a painful fashion. And you heard that on Thursday in the lives of the patriarchs. And I'm telling you the reason that we're all here is from the painful moments that we also experience the transformation power of God. But you have to learn to teach your wife, and you first have to do it, and then on to your children, to say enough with those inner thoughts. It has to be. We have got to become men who have a firm grasp on El Shaddai, the God who is enough for us so we will not think about what we don't have or our failure or the things that are grinding on us. And say enough to that. Arise. Get to work. We're going to move forward in our calling and move forward in righteous action because if he promised it, it doesn't matter what I'm seeing right now. He will bring it to pass. Heads of households. If you can't do that, your wife will never learn to do it. There's not a chance that the weaker vessel is going to learn to still her inner thoughts if you cannot learn to put constant fear of inadequacy, of failure, to death. So I want to say specifically to you husbands as we're responding to this, this might be an opportunity for God to help you get a new grasp on something, a new piece of the land that God is giving you that is a key to unlocking the rest of it. You know the thoughts that plagued you, the thoughts that have plagued you in between the mistakes you made or someone else's mistake. This is where we learn to still them, to get up and move on, and then you will be able to teach your spouse to do the same. You will be able to teach your disciples and your sons to do the same. But it starts with you, and this house hangs on your shoulders. No one else can do what God has called you to do and has prepared in advance for you to do. Spencer, why don't, why don't y'all come? Forget whatever you were planning to do. Let's just worship lightly. Okay. begin to pray.
sense as you're wrapping your mind around some of these things. El Shaddai means he's still more than enough. He's still more than enough. When Moses was doing this, he said, I'll bring you out from under the burdens. You're contemplating the burdens that are self-inflicted right now. God promised to bring you out of that. Promised to deliver you from these behaviors. You're at an altar because you're sinful human beings with sinful thoughts and sinful ways. But the third thing he said to Moses is, I will redeem you. Then he said, I will take you to be with me. Then he said, I will be your God. So Father, as your people right now, we're asking for your redemption from these behaviors. Your redemption from these thoughts. Father, we're saying that you didn't put a distance there. We've done it. And we're asking you to take us to be with you. Draw us now close to you. Father, help us now to come close to you because you are taking us to be your people. Somebody say in faith, he's my God. He's my God. So I will be his people. So I will be his people. Then he says, I'm going to take you into the land. That's your new areas of responsibility you're settling in. That's the new things that when we stand up, we're going to rise to do. This is what it looks like to still your inner man. He's enough when you're not. That's how you still your inner man. When we stand up, we stand up because he has given us something as a possession. He has given us his covenantal name. He won't forsake you. And when you've forsaken him, he will draw you back to him if you consider him enough. Father, we've said that we are your people. We have identified the hammering thoughts of every anvil situation. At this altar, we're laying them down. Father, when you call to us to rise up, we're going to stand up into your name and character, that you're enough to make us what we need to be, that you are the covenant-keeping God that is able to cause us to walk forward faithfully. Start to rise, church. Rise on the inside. Rise on the outside. We're all crammed so tight right now, that's good. So I'm just going to call names and I might not be able to find some of you. Spencer, where are you at? Evambola. Linton. 
You guys are going to help us in new ways. The number one skill is that you're going to have to quiet those inner thoughts. The kind that an angel can show up and tell Mary, greetings, you who are highly favored. God is with you. And she's greatly disturbed. You know why we get disturbed? You're scared you're not enough for whatever he's calling you into. He is enough even when you're not. The covenant name of God will cause him to carry you, inform you, and make you. And that process never stops. Can you stand up into that? I've been given a directive from Luke 2.25. Some of you won't understand this at all, but that's okay. I want to do it publicly. I don't get to go be with the king until this ministry starts to do its part in the beginning of the consolation of Israel. Carlos Rueda, Justin Treister, Rob Barnett, where's Cody Steve? There we go. I'm going to adopt y'all all over again as sons. You're going to have to still your inner thoughts. You're going to have to learn that when the attack on the inside is greater than the attack on the outside, to say, enough. He's enough to make me what he said he would. He's El Shaddai. And he's Yahweh. He's made this covenant. He called me into it. And I'm going to walk in it. Church, there's nobody in this body that does not have a special role in the days to come. Some of you are going to see your brothers excel and you're going to ask a devilish question. Why is that not me? This is not a competition. Still those thoughts. Don't be that weak, miserable Christian that spends their life criticizing others and themselves and their thoughts. Still those thoughts. And stand up into what God has said to do. To this body, and especially to those men, I think you can literally turn anywhere in the Word of God and it will speak to you. And Judah was in Psalm 107. I want you to hear this. How do we still the thoughts? Psalm 108, verse 2. Awake, O harp and lyre, I will awake the dawn. Who will awake the dawn? That's a very personal thing. Every Christian, but especially those that are called to lead others, has a personal responsibility every day to walk into a situation and say, I, I will awaken the dawn. You know where that has to start? Stilling your inner thoughts. How are you going to address the darkness around you if you can't address the darkness within you? To look at it and say, El Shaddai says, enough. 
it's due to say it, half of the criticism is going to be true. To be able to look at it and go, yeah, that's true. I agree with my adversary quickly. But that's not all that's true. Watch me awaken this dawn. Step one, awaken the dawn. Do it in you. Do it in others. Still those voices. You ready for step two, congregation? Look at verse 13. I wait for it. This is just too good. With God, we shall do valiantly. It is he who will tread down our foes. Can you hear El Shaddai? I will waken the dawn. He, he's enough for you to change every situation starting with the one inside of you. Can you hear Yahweh? With God, we shall do valiantly. What starts is your personal responsibility. I will still this craziness inside of me. I will still these thoughts. I will walk into this situation and bring light. Ends up with we shall do valiantly. If every man and woman in here will start with your responsibility to still your inner thoughts. To speak light to yourself in the world around you. That will turn into, we shall do valiantly. Son, we will go out into the deep waters and we will see wondrous things. And we will reach the desired haven. This is going to be a good year. Which also means the enemy is going to press us all. I guarantee you when we put them on planes, factions will try to arise here. I guarantee you the enemy will try to smother our finances so that we cannot support them. I could list this. All uh, We may even have a physical move. And you're going to have to steal your inner thoughts. Come on. Rise, waken the dawn and say, we shall do valiant things. Come on. This is how the people of God win. It's how we've always won. And it's why there's a ministry for some of you people to walk into. This is not a one month kind of thing. You fall down, Damon, you get back up. Yeah. Your latest error does not have to be your defining feature. Smother it with the next 35 right things God told yeah, you to do. Yeah, come on. Can we now worship together? If you got nothing else, a two-prong attack is constant. Did y'all get that? So a two-prong solution has got to be just as constant. Silence to those thoughts, rise to action. Silence to those thoughts, rise to action. If you're given seven things to do, you won't remember it. When you're punched in the mouth, you won't remember it. You know what you can remember every time? Tell yourself to shut up and your feet to stand up. We're going to pray. Give Spencer a chance to figure out how to abuse that guitar. Oh, yeah. And then worship together. Okay? Everybody's got a special season coming in this church. We're in one right now. Bim, Lenton, Big Spence, 
Put this into practice. We need you. Carlos, Treester, Rob, Cody, Israel needs you. Which means we have to start now in a brand new way. That starts this week. Church, we need you. The next great calling will rise from this room, I promise it. That's why you're here. Even my new friends on the back row, God didn't drag you in here just to endure it. This is life-changing ministries. We're all changing. That's what's happening. And what he's making is beautiful. Father, we lift our hands towards you. Lord, we're trying to make our entire body like a cup that you can fill with your spirit. Lord, we're calling out to the deep waters within that they would rise to meet the deep waters around us. Father, we have stilled ourselves. Now we will stand up into what you say we are. We know who you are, Lord, and you are making us into you. Father, we rejoice in your great name. In the name of Jesus Christ, we rise.